Hey, so we are uh, in our third part of a series called The Last 24, and if you're, you're new with us, you're visiting us the first time, or maybe back for the first time in a little while, um, kind of bring you up to speed on what we're, what we're reading about and talking about. And essentially, it's a study over, or verse by verse, and kind of through some different uh, passages, we're going through the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Um, if you're familiar with the Bible, then you probably already know this, but if you're not you know, terribly familiar, then you might not know this. Um, in the Bible, there's four different accounts of Jesus' life. They're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, and they're called the Gospels when everybody refers to, you know, so you open up the Gospel of whatever. That's, that's generally speaking, that is one of the accounts of Jesus' life. And as people wrote about Jesus' life, um, there was different stories that were recorded, different miracles that were recorded, different teachings that were recorded. There's some overlap, and there's some independent stories on, on each Gospel. But one of the things that unifies each of the Gospels together is in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, um, almost every writer or every writer, I would say, stops and records an inordinate amount of detail about the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. In fact, the book of John that we're going to be reading from today, John spends about half of his entire account of Jesus' life simply on the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And what's interesting about this whole thing is that when they stopped and when they wrote, they wrote in so much detail that if you were to just account for the amount of detail that they wrote on that 24-hour period and, and do that over this three-year ministry, then you would probably have enough information or enough detail to fill about three Bibles, or three of what we have as a Bible, um, full of just Jesus' ministry. Because it's almost like the gospel writers, as they were writing you know, the stories and as they were recounting the details, they got to the last 24 hours of Jesus' life and just paused and said, we have some stuff. We have some details. We have some teachings that you just need to know. And here is why. And you can't can't miss this. Jesus had an advantage that none of us probably will ever have. Jesus had an advantage that probably none of us will ever have that Jesus knew it was the last 24 hours of his life and he was fully functional and fully capable. You see, some of us, we're going to go through the last 24 hours of our life, and we're not going to know it was the last 24 hours of our life. Or some of us, you know, when you get old, perhaps, and maybe you get sick, or, you know, for whatever reason, you know, you're kind of going, 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 and going, and you know it's getting close to the end, and almost everybody, as they reach towards the end of their life, they don't really know exactly when the cutoff's going to be, and on top of that, they don't have all of their, you know, faculties, and they don't have all their mental acuity and all that kind of stuff, but Jesus knew he had 24 hours to live and was fully functional as both God and a human being. And so Jesus, as any of us would do if we were in that situation, lives the last 24 hours of his life with extraordinary purpose. I mean, come on. What would you do? What would you do? Who would you talk to? What last conversations would you have? What last meals would you have? Who would you eat with if you knew that this was the last dinner you're ever going to eat here on planet Earth? What would you, who would you talk to? For the last breakfast, what would be the last prayer? What would be the contents of the last prayer that you prayed when you were praying with your family? And it's almost like the gospel writers, as they're remembering back and as they're writing the words that would become the Bible, pause with incredible detail and recount the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Up to the point that we're going to read today, we've been through a couple big events in the last 24 hours Jesus had the last dinner with his disciples. And as he talked with his disciples, he went through an incredible teaching. After that, he went into the garden. And he prays in the garden with his disciples for the last time. In fact, he has his disciples pray for him. And he prays a prayer that we talked about last week, that Micah talked about last week, which is incredible significance. Jesus prays a prayer in the garden that basically says, God, I don't want this to happen. 
I wish this wouldn't happen. I would prefer this not to happen. God, but your will be done, not my will. Jesus prayed in the garden and said, basically, God, what you want, not what I want. What you would have, not what I would have. And Micah last week when he taught brought an incredible significance to this. Because what started in the garden in Adam's rebellion, what started in the garden when Adam first sinned, when Adam said, God, I know what you would want me to do. I know what you would have for me to do. I know what you would not want for me to do. And God, I want to be like you. I want to be like God. I want to be, you know, kind of choose my own way as opposed to choosing your way. And so I'm going to rebel against you, God. And the history of mankind has been in rebellion ever since. But Jesus, in the garden, redeemed Adam's rebellion that started in a garden with an act of submission. And it set it on a trajectory that was headed straight for the cross. Now today, we're going to read about the trial of Jesus. And in this trial, let me just tell you, there's a statement coming close to the end of it. That a bunch of statements going up towards it lead to it. But there's a statement, there's an interaction that Jesus has with a guy named Pilate. That Pilate has a statement for Jesus. Jesus' response back, let me just tell you, is so, so, so intuitive into us, into our lives. Now, before we get there, I want to, um, to read through some stuff with you. So if you've got your Bible, you can flip open. If you don't want to have it on the screen, we're going to start in John chapter 18. Now, we're going to go through kind of the, the story of, of, of what happened. So, um, again, towards the end of Jesus' life, last 24 hours, already been you know, through the dinner thing, already been through the garden thing. In fact, this is on the heels when they went from one garden to another garden, and Jesus is about to be arrested. So here's how the story unfolds. John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, talking about some things that he had just said and prayed, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who if you again are familiar with the Bible, then you know this. If you're not, then maybe you aren't. Judas was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was one of his inner 12, and Judas had decided that he was going to betray Jesus. And kind of during the last dinner, Jesus dismisses Judas. Judas walks out, goes against these people, and he's about to come back and betray Jesus. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? Now, interesting. interesting. Now, again, Jesus knows he's about to die. And so Jesus knows they're coming for him. Jesus sees the people coming and the lanterns coming. And what's interesting, first you know, kind of detail about it, is Jesus doesn't go and run and hide. Jesus walks up to him and he says, Hey, who are you looking for? Whom do you seek is how he says it. Verse 5. And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he. Now this is is just an, an, an interesting little detail that the gospel writer accounts for. That when Jesus said, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. Now, here's why that's that's interesting. Because the people that went to go arrest Jesus were in awe of Jesus. The people who went to go arrest Jesus were, for some reason, we don't know what happened. We don't know if they were hit by the glory of God, or maybe they just got real scared. Maybe an earthquake happened. We don't know what happened. But for some reason, they drew back, and they fell down. And here's what we're going to find throughout this story. When they went and they fell down and they kind of went back, Jesus didn't say, okay, this is my chance to get out. In fact, in the story of the trial, 
over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus has an opportunity to back out. Not just back out, to just explain himself. To simply explain himself in a way that he wouldn't have to endure the cross. And it starts out with these guys who fall on the ground when they say, when he says, I am he. And instead of saying, okay, that's what I thought, I'm Jesus. That's right. Bow down, sucker. You know, Jesus looks at him. Jesus looks at him. He says it again. He says, maybe you didn't hear me. So he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those who you gave me, I have not lost one. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and stuck the high priest's servant on his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Now, interesting, classic Malchus. Now, if you know, if you know Peter, and if you're familiar with the Bible, again, Peter, Peter does this kind of thing. And, and this, frankly, this detail has nothing to do with the story. I just think it's interesting. I heard a guy talk about this one time. He said, you know, the thing about Peter is Peter was either the most, you know, fierce competitor. He was either the best swordsman that you'd ever met before, or he was awful. And here's why. Either he was going for a headshot and completely whiffed and caught an ear, or he was going for the ear and caught, like, the edge of an ear. Like, that, that's a dude that you don't want to mess with if, you know, you're kind of moving back and forth, and he's got a sword, and he just, you know, just, like, takes off the side of your ear. Or he was going headshot and just whiffed. So we don't know what side of that, that coin Peter was on, but Peter decides that I'm just going to go, you know, going to go full-on, you know, fight or flight. He's fighting. He pulls out his sword. He chops him all, you know, chops off the ear. This guy named Malchus. And what Jesus said next sets the tone for what would become his trial. So Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In other words, Peter, I don't want you to be mistaken. This is the plan of God. Peter, I know it doesn't look like it. And Peter, I appreciate you trying to defend me. I appreciate you trying to defend my honor. But Peter, let me just tell you, I know it's about to seem dark. I know it's about to seem bad. I know it's about to seem like death has won, like evil has won. But this is, in fact, the plan of God. So, Peter, put your sword away. Because this is God's plan. Continues on. So, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers and the, and the Jews who first arrested and bound him. First they led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And what happens is Jesus gets led to Annas, who's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And as he's talking to Annas, he's talking to him, talking to him, basically won't explain himself, won't explain himself, won't explain himself. And so Annas gets frustrated and said, okay, let's go talk to Caiaphas, the high priest. And as Jesus talks to the Caiaphas, the high priest, one of the things that you read, no matter what gospel account you read, as you read through the last 24 hours, especially the trial, Jesus constantly frustrates whoever he's talking to. That Jesus would not answer a question straightly. He wouldn't answer a question directly. In fact, he would just, it's almost like Jesus was asking for it with how indirect, with how passive, with how just non-committal he was with his answers. So this is the interaction between, between Caiaphas after Annas had kind of gotten you know, frustrated. Verse 19. So after Annas took him to Caiaphas, verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus, the high priest is Caiaphas, about his disciples and his teachings. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. 
I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. And so why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them because they know what I said. And when, is, when, is, when they had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. And he says, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas. Now, now as he's finishing this conversation, as he's finishing this detail of, of what's happening, the most interesting thing that Jesus does constantly throughout the, throughout the trial, again, is he's talking to this guy who has the power to let him go. <laughs> and Jesus answers him sarcastically. He goes to him and says, hey, so tell me, what's the deal? What's the deal? Tell me about your teachings. To which Jesus could have said, okay, well, let me tell you about my teachings. I teach you about love. I teach you about grace. I teach you about acceptance. Teach about caring for the marginalized. Teach about the kingdom of heaven. Teach about the kingdom of God. You know what Jesus says? Why are you asking me? Go ask somebody else. I taught everything. Everything I taught, there wasn't this secret group. There wasn't this elite group. There wasn't just this one particular group that I was talking to. Everything I taught, I taught in the synagogues and in the temples where everybody and anybody can hear me. So if you've got a question about what I teach, why don't you just go ask somebody who heard it? You sarcastic little son of a gun, Jesus. As it progresses on, Annas to Caiaphas, Caiaphas to Pilate. Jesus talks to Pilate, and the same thing frustrates Pilate. As he's talking to Pilate, Pilate's perplexed. Because Pilate doesn't think that Jesus is guilty. And he doesn't think that he should do anything about it. And so as Luke accounts it, Pilate sends him to Herod, and Herod is actually looking forward to meeting Jesus, how he talks about it, because Herod has heard, Herod has heard about Jesus, and it says that Herod was looking forward to meeting Jesus, hoping that he would do some kind of a miracle. Now, here's what's interesting. One of the guys who was looking and who would ultimately be the one responsible or partly responsible for killing Jesus didn't want to kill Jesus in the first place. He wanted to meet him. This is like that person that you've heard about a thousand times, that you've been talking to a thousand times, and you know, they, you've heard their name, you've heard of them, maybe you know, we're, we're, we're young and hip, and so you've seen them on Instagram or Facebook, and you know, you've heard of this person. You're like, man, I've been wanting to meet this person for a long time. That was one of the people who would be responsible for Jesus. And so Jesus goes and meets Herod, who's heard about Jesus, who wants to meet Jesus, and Herod questions Jesus. And you know what Jesus does? He says nothing. Constantly constantly the people he was meeting with he frustrates because he won't answer he won't talk to like he or like they wanted to talk to him and here's why because jesus knew that he could talk his way out of it jesus knew he could miracle his way out of it but jesus also knew that his entire purpose on planet earth was to die his purpose was not to perform miracles, though he did. His purpose was not to give insightful teachings, though he did. 
His purpose was not to say, here's how you ought to order your relationships. Here's how you ought to order your finances. Here's how you ought to order your marriage. Here's how you ought to order how you parent. Here's how you ought to think about your career path. I mean, he said things that were so insightful that for centuries and centuries later, for decades later, in fact, you know, thousands of years into the future, people would still be talking about the wisdom that he spoke with. But what he knew in this moment was that was all secondary. To his purpose. And his purpose was now. And when he could have walked away, he didn't walk away. In fact, it continues on. Herod sends back to Pilate. Pilate gets Jesus for the second time. And as Pilate's talking to Jesus in chapter 19, verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus, something that you're probably familiar with. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again to them and said, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Now let me kind of paint you the picture of what just happened. What the Romans did is they were, they were, they were kind of ingenious in a way. That they knew exactly how much torture the human body could take. And so they would basically get what was called a cat of nine tails. Again, if you're familiar with church, you've heard this before. And at the end of, of, of this cat of nine tails was, was these little balls that were bone and that were rock and there were all kinds of things. And they would whip the person and as it, as it would go and it would dig in and it would just rip their flesh out. And they would dig in and rip their flesh out and dig in and rip their flesh out. And they'd do it 39 times because they knew that if you did it for a 40th time, the person would probably die. But you can do this to someone 39 times, go through excruciating pain, but they're probably not going to die. And on top of that, he gets this crown of thorns, has it twisted, put, in there, put on Jesus' head, and then beat onto his head. On top of that, they put a robe on top of him, not because they think he's a king because he deserves a robe, because they're making fun of him. And here's the incredible detail about this. Pilate did this. Not because he thought Jesus deserved it. Pilate did this because he wanted to appease the crowd. In fact, when Pilate has Jesus whipped, has Jesus flogged, when Pilate has the crown of thorns put on, when Pilate has the robe put on, it's not because Pilate's saying he should be crucified. It's because everybody else is saying, crucify, 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 crucify. And Pilate's saying, I don't want to crucify him. I don't see anything in him that deserves to be crucified, but I've got to make the crowd happy somehow. So maybe if I beat him with an inch of his life, maybe if I flog him, maybe if I make fun of him, maybe if I ridicule him, maybe perhaps this will make the crowd happy. And so Pilate, brings Jesus back in front of the crowd to essentially say, come on, aren't you happy? I find nothing wrong with this guy, and I did all this to him. And the crowd's relentless. So Jesus came out, wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to him, behold the man. And when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate and the apostle look at him and say, Hey, hey, there's no reason for me to crucify this guy. I don't have any reason. I don't have, you know, that just doesn't make sense. If you guys want to crucify him, crucify him yourself. 
The Jews answered, we have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. In other words, Pilate heard this, and Pilate didn't think, we should kill him. Pilate heard this and thought, if, if, if Jesus is right, that's a big deal. Pilate was hit with this sense of the gravity of the situation that was happening. And so he entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, a simple question, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now, Pilate is in an incredible situation because Pilate is looking at this guy who he finds nothing wrong with, no guilt in, no reason that he's just had him whipped, that he's just had him beaten. And yet the crowd is yelling, crucify, 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 which many of us would say, hey, as a leader, why in the world, why in the world would you even just listen to the crowd? I mean, come on, you're Pilate. You can do whatever you want. But here was their case. In fact, it says it in, starting in verse, I think it's verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. In other words, Pilate, let me just tell you, the crowd would kind of re- repeat. That he's saying that he's the king. And we know that the only king is Caesar. And Pilate, he's saying that he is the king. And Pilate, don't you know, don't you know, I mean, come on, Pilate, you don't want Caesar to find out that you're letting somebody else besides Caesar claim that they're king. And so because of political pressure, Pilate sends Jesus to the cross. Now what's interesting is right before this, an interaction happens with Pilate. As Pilate's perplexed, as Pilate sees this guy, as Pilate feels this political pressure, at the same time, he doesn't think he's guilty. And yet you've got this guy, Jesus, who won't stinking answer. I mean, talk about frustration. Talk about frustration. Pilate's not convinced. He doesn't think he's done anything wrong. But yet crucify, 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 crucify. Caesar, Caesar, Caesar. King, king, king. And so he kind of draws Jesus back into his headquarters. And he says, hey, hey, come on. Just tell me, where are you from? I'm going to start simple. I'm not even asking the complex question. I'm not explaining, you know, say, explain your theology, explain your doctrine. Just where are you from? He entered in the headquarters and said, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him what I think is one of the most genuine and authentic statements in the Bible. You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus looking at Pilate, looking at Jesus, saying, Jesus, come on. Don't you realize? I mean, you're not saying, I just asked you where you're from. I didn't even ask you a complex question. Everyone's wanting me to crucify, crucify, crucify. I don't think anything's wrong with you. And I'm giving you an opportunity to, to just get out of this whole thing. Just simply tell me where you're from. And Jesus doesn't answer. So Pilate says, Come on. Don't you realize that I have the power? 
Don't you realize that I have the authority? I can have you killed. I can have you set free. I can have you crucified. I can make it so you go on living and you go on ministering and you go on doing what you Jesus, don't you understand that I have the power to kill you or set you free? And Jesus' response back explodes the mind of Pilate and the readers as he just unearths the reality of what's happening spiritually in this conversation and in this interaction. And Jesus says this. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. In other words, Pilate, I think you know, or I think you think you know, that you have all this power and all this authority. But Pilate, let me tell you something before you get carried away. The authority that you have was given to you by my father. In other words, I know that you think you're in control of this situation, but you are not in control of this situation at all. This is the plan, and this is the will of God for me to be crucified, to set the world free of their sins. And Pilate, I know you think that you have all the power. Pilate, I know you think that you have the, all the control. But Pilate, let me just tell you, you are an asterisk. You are a footnote in the history of the story of the redemption of God with mankind. That Pilate, you're playing a very small part. And Pilate, by the way, thousands of years from now, people are going to remember you. But they're not going to remember you because you were a Pilate, you were a great ruler. They're going to remember you because we had a conversation where you were so frustrated. And I let you know that you didn't really have the power and the authority that you wanted to because the cross, the cross, the cross was the purpose of God for Jesus here on planet earth. In fact, a couple months, well, about a month and a half ago, we went through Jesus in the Old Testament. I want to flip it back, if you will, with me. In Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah 53, hundreds of years before Jesus steps foot on planet Earth, Isaiah prophesies this about what would happen through Jesus. In chapter 53, verse 9, he says this, And they made his grave, talking about Jesus, with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the will of God to crush him. In other words, yet. This was the plan of God. This was the plan of God. This was the plan of God that Jesus had multiple chances, multiple opportunities to get out from this plan. At every single interaction, Jesus could have chosen anything other than the cross. In the garden, could have chosen something different. With Annas, chosen something different. With Caiaphas, chosen something different. With Pilate the first time, chosen something different. With Herod, I mean, good grief, Herod wanted to meet him, could have chosen something different. Back to Pilate, could have chosen something different. Been flogged, could have chosen something different. Back in front of the crowd, could have chosen something different. Back with Pilate again for the third time, could have chosen anything different. But, but Jesus looks at Pilate in the face and says, Pilate, you have no clue what's happening right now. That the purpose of God The purpose of Jesus was simply to die. And everything else is supplementary to that. Let me tell you why that's so important. Because we live in a culture where we love to respect Jesus. We live in a culture where it's popular to have an affinity for Jesus. We love to incorporate the ideas and the wisdom of Jesus. But the point of Jesus 
was for salvation for mankind. And to miss that is to miss the entire point of Jesus himself. You see, we love to talk about when it comes to Jesus, how it interfaces with our relationships, how we ought to love one another, how we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. And those are all wonderful and good things. But let me tell you, let me just tell you, what we don't like to do very often is look at the reality that Jesus died for my sin. Let me tell you why we wanted to spend, honestly, 20, these four weeks looking at Jesus' life and looking at Jesus' death. Because it's so easy for me to read the Gospels, to read the pages of Scripture, and think about how it relates to my life, how it relates to my marriage, how it relates to my finances, how it relates to my work, you know, all these different types of things. We love to talk about that and integrate that, and absolutely we're going to continue to do that. But it's so much more uncomfortable to look at the cross and know that it was my sin that sent him there. To know that when he was put on the cross, to know that when he was whipped, to know that when he was beaten, it was my sin that put him there. And to know that he could have gotten out of it at any point in time. In fact, Pilate was practically begging him, come on, don't you understand? And Jesus just looks at him. Knowing that he could avoid it. Knowing that he could get out from under it. Knowing that he could explain his way. He says, Pilate, you don't understand. You don't understand what's about to happen. And Jesus went to the cross. Jesus didn't see my sin and avoid my sin. Jesus didn't see my guilt and avoid my guilt. Jesus didn't see my shame and avoid my shame. Jesus saw it and embraced it. When he could have backed away, he didn't back away. When he could have gone and taken another route, he embraced the pain. In fact, Philippians chapter 2, Paul would say it this way. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus, who saw the fact that he would glorify his Father. Jesus saw the fact that he would redeem all of mankind. Jesus saw that he would be one with the Father and that he would bring salvation to the entire earth for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He did not go away from it. And let me just tell you the the bottom line of this whole thing. As Christians, as Christians, as Christians, we love to avoid our sin. We love to not confront our sin. We love to walk away from it. We love to get out from under it. We live at every opportunity that we can to just avoid these ideas of I have areas of my life that are sinful. But on the cross, Jesus embraced and took on all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame. And when he could have walked away, he chose not to. At the end of the day, as Christians, you ought to feel two things simultaneously. And it's this odd dichotomy that happens as a Christian where we feel so sinful because at the core of who I am, I am a sinner. But at the same time, I serve a Savior who loved me so deeply and so richly that He sent. His son to die for me. That he didn't overlook my sin. He didn't overlook my guilt. He didn't overlook my shame. He 
embraced it. So when you walk away today, every sermon's got to kind of have a bottom line. Here's how you apply it. Here's what I want you to know. And you serve a God who didn't look at you and condemn you, who didn't look at you and say, no, I'm not going to deal with that. You serve a God. I serve a God who looked at our sin, who looked at our guilt, who looked at our shame, and who could have gone away from it multiple, multiple times, but decided to embrace it. You ought to feel loved because of that. You ought to feel loved by a heavenly father who knows you so well, it's almost weird. But who loves you so much, he sent his son to die for you in light of it. Let me just end by saying this. If you're in here, you're a Christian. Been a Christian for a long time. I almost think the longer you've been a Christian, the easier it is to avoid our sin. Here's, Here's what I want you to know. Jesus didn't take your sin lightly, neither should you. Jesus didn't take your sin lightly, neither should you. Jesus died to set you free. So as Paul would later say, why then, why then do you return to this enslavement, this bondage, this slavery of sin? If God has set you free, then why do you return to the chains that he set you free from? You see, it's easy. Oh, how I'm going to you know, integrate it with my relationships. Oh, it's easy how I'm going to integrate it with my life. Oh, how am I going to integrate with this with my finances? Oh, how am I going to integrate with this with my family, with my work? But it's difficult. It's difficult to sit under the weight of the reality that God sent his son for one purpose and one purpose only, to take the sin of the world, but my sin specifically. And if he took my sin seriously, so should I. Now, I'm going to end by saying this. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, kind of just you know, figuring this whole thing out, one, the, the great thing is this is at the core of what Christians believe. Like Jesus said, it's, it's not a big secret. There's not like a little sub-par you know, thing or a little thing that we're going to go over you know, two weeks into being saved. This is what it looks like. This is the core. It is the cross. This is the core. It is the cross. But let me just say this. For many of us who are investigating Christianity, for many of us who don't like Christianity, isn't this why? Because you've experienced a bunch of uh, Christians who are so sinful and nobody takes their sin seriously. Nobody actually fights temptation. Nobody actually fights sin. We just give in to it over and over and over and over and over again and say, it's my struggle, pray for me. (laughs) We are the most non-struggling strugglers I've ever met. Because we love to get out. So let me just... Christians, let me just challenge you. If you're not a Christian, you don't have to listen to this part. If you're a Christian, come here. Let me challenge you for a second. If God took sin so seriously that he sent his son to die on the cross for it, we ought to take it seriously as well. Because that was the entire point of Jesus' life. And if we miss that, we miss the point of Jesus himself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for preserving this text. Thank you so much that all the writers who wrote put so much detail into what they would write. 
God, I thank you for the fact that we are a loved people. That in the middle of this, we feel, you know, perhaps a sense of, of, of guilt. We feel perhaps a sense of shame. We feel perhaps a sense of, of whatever it is. But you came to set us free from that. You came to set us free from the sin that so easily ensnares and entangles us. You came so that we would feel free. And God, I pray that we would feel loved because you did not, when you multiple times could have, back away from our sin and our guilt and our shame. You embraced it. You endured it. You carried it on the cross because you incomprehensibly love us that much and we are so, so, so thankful. So God, I pray for everybody in here who's a Christian that you would help us to take our sin as seriously as you took it. You would help us to take our holiness as seriously as you took it. You would help us to take our desire to be like you as seriously as you took it. And God, I pray for everyone in here who's on the fence about Christianity, who's trying to figure this whole thing out. God, that you would help them to meet Christians who actually live like Christians. And perhaps when they do, they'll change, they'll think, maybe even just for a second reconsider their view on you, Jesus, our Savior, who came simply to die. Please, please, please don't let us miss that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.